This podcast is brought to you by the Common Mission Project. Hello and welcome. This is James Santo with the Common Mission Project. With me is my co-host Rodrigo and our very Hi, special Jim. guest. Hi, Rodrigo. Our very special guest today is Alex Osterwalder. Welcome, Alex. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank yeah, you this so is... much, Alex. Yeah, we're we're incredibly excited about this uh, opportunity to speak with you, Alex. We're we're big fans of your work, both Rodrigo and I, academically, but also within Common Mission Project. And you know, it's it's such a it's such an honor to be able to have somebody who has been like the architect of so much of this thought and the frameworks that we use. So thank you for being here again. Real pleasure, Alex. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to have you here. Our students have been exposed to a lot of your work, either directly or indirectly, right? Directly by reading your books, but also indirectly, given the influence that you had in a lot of the lean launchpad and hacking for defend methodologies. So I would like to jump into the first part of the conversation regarding testing business ideas. Uh, after that one, we actually would love to jump in the second part and have a conversation regarding the, the, the invisible company and, and maybe high impact tool for teams, but specifically testing business ideas. I, I've been using that book, Jim and I have been using it as reference for a while. And one of the, I, I, I love to say to students, I, we're giving you the recipe book, right? So yeah. in many ways, uh, testing business ideas for me has been this fantastic place where you go learn some of the basic principles of uh, entrepreneurship and innovation, but then I'm going to give you the recipe book so you can find out what dish you want to cook and what do you want to learn. And in many ways, it forces them to think about the formula that they need to apply to get the validated learning. So what could you tell us about that book, specifically in the context of are you, were you, when you were writing it, were you thinking of going beyond the interview, right? Is, was that part of the principle of applying this scientific method approach to uh, entrepreneurship? So a couple of things. Awesome okay, question <laughs> to start with. Um, so when we decided to write this book, I approached uh, David Bland, uh, who's you know, doing this now for a couple of years. Um, and then, you know, the question was, does the world need another business book in particular on this topic, right? You have... Steve Blank, who launched this whole thing, and then Eric Ries, who made the kind of agile engineering part yep. popular with the Lean Startup. So we thought, well, yes, because uh, I think, you know, the big merit um, in particular of uh, our friend Steve is to have launched this and really made it a movement, in particular also in government, not just, you know, in, in entrepreneurship education and government. And then uh, we're pushing this with strategizer and corporations. But so there's, I think we, we're now in a process where we're moving beyond ideology into a profession. So what was yep. good 10 years ago is not good enough today anymore, right? So, right, right. you know, just saying, oh, yeah, I'm doing lean startup, right? I'm doing customer development. Then you dig a little bit and say, yeah, you're, you started, but you know what? We're actually, <laughs> today is a profession where we have pretty good tools and we're, you know, a little bit more detailed. It's getting closer to accounting, so almost boring to a certain extent than, than what it was before, when we were in the exploratory phase, you know, with Steve launching this and Eric making this popular, us bringing in the tools, that was the early phases. Now we know a lot and it's different. So first thing is, interviews is not enough. It's just yep. what we call light evidence. Correct. In testing business ideas, we first call it weak evidence. And then we realize if you call it weak, <laughs> you know, the leaders are going to say, do better than weak. So we call it light. But... That's not enough, right? You can talk to 100 people. It's still just what people think and say. So interviews is not enough. That's why we created a whole kind of system to talk about strength of evidence. That's number one. But then the number two is, well, there's a whole library of experiments beyond interview and, and you know, MVP. So people get right. stuck with, oh, I'm going to do interviews and then an MVP. Sometimes they go right building stuff. There's just some, some basic stuff that was okay, good enough in the past. It's not good enough anymore. So number one is there are different types of evidence with different strength. In interview mm -hmm. is the weakest type of evidence. It's light evidence. Great start. You can do it fast. Costs very little other than your time. It's right. not good enough when you actually invest, you know, a million or 100, 100 million bucks you know, into scaling something. <laughs> then the other aspect is, well, okay. There are a whole series of experiments, and you need to do the right experiment at the right time. That's what we started to bring in in testing business ideas. And I can go into strength of evidence a little bit later on. Yep. Absolutely. It no. sounds great. 
And I love the idea that the interview is the weakest version of the things that you are proposing. And from there, you move forward. So for listeners, and it will be nice for them to know, okay, what it's above that? How, how do right. you yeah. move in that scale yeah. of evidence? Yes. So <laughs> the, there's a very basic drawing that I like and that works you know, really well is saying, okay, you start with an idea. And that idea might be you know, using a technology to create value could be a business opportunity, or if we're talking about missions, you know, some challenge that we need to solve. So you start with an idea, and ultimately, you want to turn this into a real solution. And what started with Steve Blank and the customer development process is we're actually going to admit that uncertainty is very high. We mm -hmm. have no clue if things are going to work, mm -hmm. right? So we actually admit we don't know. But we also say we have a process to reduce this uncertainty and risk, okay? Mm -hmm. We're going to reduce that. How are we going to do that? With experiments. The cheapest and lightest form of experiment, maybe not the cheapest, but one of the light forms is interviews. Great. We can start talking to customers about what they're mm -hmm. struggling with or users or beneficiaries. Great. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, eventually we'll go, maybe we'll do a spec sheet on a PDF to describe our solution, but just as a PDF, you know, spec sheet and what it's going to mm -hmm. do. Then right. maybe we do some kind of digital solution. So we increase the spending in experimentation, but we start fast with light evidence. And then later on, we build stuff. So this might be an MVP, a real minimal yep. viable product. Right. And there are a couple of, you know, things that are broken today in the way we do this. One is we just stick to interviews and then we go and scale it. Not yep. enough, right? Yep. Or we start building right away when we haven't even understood, you know, what we call the customer profile or the beneficiary mm -hmm. profile. So this drawing is very powerful. The more, the less you know, the more you actually need to start with this stuff. The more you know, the more you can invest and invest in heavy experiments that take longer, cost more, etc. So this fundamental is not always respected, right? So you start with light evidence here. And you increase the time of the experiments, the cost of the experiments, but also the strength of evidence. Typically, if you have people, you know, starting to sign up with their email, okay, that's a little bit stronger. But mm -hmm. then you have people putting money on the table. In the for-profit world, people buying stuff. In mm -hmm. the not-for-profit world, it might be, you know, budgets that are unlocked to unlock a certain mission. And the more you get to that, the closer you get to actually scaling the thing. So... This is then the world of business plans and scaling. So this is what we say we're doing, but we're actually not always really doing that. So I think we're, we're a little bit stuck sometimes in what was good enough in the past. Yeah, we do MVPs. Well, sorry, it's not the first thing you should do. Can you right, give yeah. me strong evidence that you deeply understand the jobs, pains and gains and the priorities of your customers, users or beneficiaries? Very rarely can people give me strong evidence from experiments like Cardsort or where they, they show me, oh, I deeply understand the customer and only then do I start thinking solution. First with storyboards. Okay, I started working with storyboards and stuff there. Then I build something. So generally people build too quickly, which is one type of experiment that you'll need eventually. You need right, to build right. real stuff. But it's mm -hmm. usually very late in the game. So there are a couple of errors we're still making where we're a little bit amateurish, I'd say. We need to realize this stuff is getting professional. Yep. I think this is something that, that I often see with our students is that we call solutioneering. So starting at that MVP or the prototyping phase before yep. even having a cursory understanding of what the pain points really could look like. Yes. And then I think, you know, I often hear with uh, with students in particular, especially in an academic setting, well, they talk about quality, like data saturation. And so that's not really the point here. We're not we're not doing a qualitative assessment in the traditional sense. So when you're starting out and having a conversation, say, with a, an organization that's maybe consulting with you and saying that you have to start from the beginning, how do you relay that to somebody who is thinking, well, I, I work here, I know the problem, therefore I know the solution, which based on just your body language we in mind yeah. as well it's like we know that's just not the case right oftentimes that actually when somebody says that that to me is a red flag when you're going through and having a conversation with someone yeah. so how do you get people to really understand that this is an integral and that 100 interviews or conversations yeah. really is just a baby step in this whole process yeah, yeah so 
I'm always very neutral, right? Because I don't know what they have and what they don't have. So I don't judge, you know, they know or they don't know. I just ask, well, show me the evidence, right? Number of people who come to me with business model canvases or mission model canvases and then say, yeah, what do you think? I say, well, you know, show me the How evidence. You know? or, right. eh? And I think there, you need to realize it's like four rough phases in this whole process. And they match really well with uh, Steve Blank's customer development process. Mm-hmm. So there are four kind of rough phases that <laughs> overlaps perfectly with Steve's work. The first one is just, you know, understanding the customer. And you go in and say, okay, show me the evidence. Oh, well, we have, you know, these and these number of user requests and blah, blah, blah. If they have the evidence, great. But as you said, often people start with solutioneering. So before <laughs> really showing me the evidence, because for me, an understanding of the problem is not just, oh, I analyzed it. You've given, you have evidence to show. And when you have evidence to show, great, right? Then the second phase, so this is the customer, kind of what Steve calls customer discovery. The second phase um, in the customer development process, and I'll say in the rough phase, is, okay, now we start to think solution. Because you have a deep understanding of the customer, jobs, pains, and gains. Now you can start with the value proposition. Okay, great. Now show me the evidence for that. And again, for each one of these, you're going to start with interviews. Then you're going to get stronger evidence. Again, I'll show you what I mean with light and, and, and strong evidence. But you go through these phases. Only then do you start to think of, and this is where we're moving now to business model canvas stuff, the third phase, acquiring and reten- retaining customers, right? retention, right? So that's when we start to look at these boxes here. And then ultimately, when you validate all of this, then you start to scale. That's when you really go and scale up. But you go actually phase by phase. Sounds super trivial. Start with customer (laughs) evidence. Then you go to value proposition slash solution evidence. Then you go to acquisition, retention, or, you know, in mission model projects, rolling out evidence. And then you start to scale. So what we don't see yet today is a really good alignment with these four phases of any venture, which is the same in in a for-profit and not-for-profit, right? Customer, user, beneficiary. Sometimes you have two, double-sided platform or so. Mm -hmm, Then you talk solution. Second thing you look at, and again, there's a series of things from light evidence to strong evidence. Then you talk acquisition. And I didn't even put the whole revenue part in there, which is actually something that goes on all the time. Right. So we don't have this structured approach yet. So we came up with something that we call the project scorecard, where teams actually score every single project and every single business model building block based on the strength of evidence they bring to the table. So you can kind of fall into those four categories. So we're get, getting here into the methodology of the book, yeah. book itself, right? You already mentioned, yeah. I yeah. think, two, two important components. One is this, the, the strength of evidence scale. And it's a, for those listeners who have not seen the book, it's actually a pretty nice view. And you yeah. have a little bunch of little black circles, right? Depending how many, yeah. Yeah. How many circles you get is the right. strength of the evidence. Right. Uh, and then you have this scorecard that everybody who has done even basic science will recognize it's basically a hypothesis and a result, right? You're pairing mm-hmm. those to the, the things that I'm going to be doing, your research protocol, and then the results yeah. of those research experiments. And if the hypothesis that you have matches what you thought you would get. Add one thing, which is difference with science and with these kind of projects. Because in science, you have a hypothesis and then you have true false. Right. Well, Correct. You know, in, in the world of a complex business project or mission, it's not true-false. You have a series of hypotheses and you have evidence that supports that or refutes that. So yep. it's not like in science where you're going to do a lot until you have this one true thing and then you turn the light on. It's constantly, you know, <laughs> getting to, okay, I, I looked at these three hypotheses. I have enough evidence that supports that. Now I'm looking at these hypotheses over here. So it's not you know, like on and off, like in science, is yep. really more like the light is getting brighter and brighter and brighter, the more evidence I have, patterns of evidence that support my idea. Mm-hmm. For, or for glasses our... are getting sharper and sharper. It's not like I had no glasses, I can't see a thing, <laughs> putting on the glasses. And so no. many teams ask me, Alex, when do I know? 
Well, it's a gradual process. You don't know. It's not on off. Okay, I did 100 interviews. Now I can scale. Well, unfortunately, there are nine building blocks to business model, and each one you need to find the evidence, and the evidence goes from weak to strong. So the Stuff. ultimate is when you build the thing, that's when all nine building blocks are and I have strong evidence. <laughs> from everything the real there, right, right. But yeah, not so far. It's gradual. It's gradual. And this is a bit of a misconception in the whole corporate and entrepreneurial movement. We think it's, we sometimes feel, or beginners feel like, oh, it's on and off. Any right, entrepreneur yeah. will tell you it's not on and off. It's patterns. Yeah. There's always cool. contradicting data. And you need to see those patterns. And that's a bit of the, the, the mix between art and science. The science for, part is iterating, but not like in real science where it's on off. It's, it's the artistic part of seeing those <laughs> patterns from your scientific process. But yes. unfortunately, yep. entrepreneurship is not science. It remains art and science. So it's scientific so process, but for, artistic. For listeners, they'll recognize that in the description that Alice gave, it's more like political science than it is <laughs> physical sciences, right? Because poly science, which we do have listeners in that field, precisely yeah. because we do a lot of the hacking for defense and national security studies, uh, a lot of the scientific progress that we get is exactly in those scales of gray, right? Nothing is black and white. Everything yeah. goes, comes with externalities and you start with a theory, but you pivot away from it the moment uh, the data tells you that there is something different and yeah. you start putting it together. So that was a great, a great point, Alex. And you uh, know, I actually, I studied political science and the reason I think like this is because institutions become what they become because you have a couple of variables coming together. So social science. Well, guess what? Business model is the same thing. Absolutely. Got several building blocks related to customers, related to, to suppliers, you know, and when these, all these things work together and are right, that's when something can emerge that will get it to a larger scale. So I think I actually political up. science is a great education to understand this stuff. I think In so addition to the scientific and to the kind of business or organizational design parts. So there's a couple of things coming we'll together. We'll put a pin on that one because that's actually a great segue for our second conversation regarding the invisible company and how to innovate within our, uh, bureaucracies and organizations, right? Uh, but I, I wanted to go back to what you mentioned, Alex, where you said that in, entrepreneurship is a process of de-risking, right? And this is such an important insight, yeah. right? That yeah. a lot of what you are doing, people see in entrepreneurs and innovators, these big risk takers or whatever. And what we, we know from the literature is that those who do it right, those, those who have been able to do it multiple times, what they're really good at is precisely as this de-risking risk problem. Yeah. Exactly, right? So yeah. they're yeah. risk managers. And you kind of came yeah. with a very interesting framework there. So but could I, you say I, a little I, bit more? Yeah. So there are two aspects, right? And then we actually describe that in, in uh, testing business ideas. We go into the testing aspect in testing business ideas. And great entrepreneurs are good at de-risking. But they're also good at something else, which is business design. Yep. designing value propositions and designing business models or missions. So you actually go back and forth. And the reason I'm highlighting this is because you have some people who get stuck in business design. They think about concepts and they get super excited and want to find the perfect idea. That doesn't work. Right. <laughs> and you have right. people who get stuck in the testing process. Oh, I need to find evidence, I need to find evidence. But they're not never able feel... to then take that evidence and actually change it and see the patterns to design value propositions in business models. So the point is, you go back and forth between the, those two main activities, business design, and you know we could call it mission design if we're talking about impact, mm -hmm. and testing, and they will inform each other. So you get evidence. Okay, well, the patterns there might force you to change the value propositions or the mission, mm -hmm. and then stuff there will ask you, okay, what am I going to test? So it's back and forth between the... The business design, mission design, and the testing. It's not one or the other. It's not sequential. It's constantly navigating between those two. That's what entrepreneurs are good at. And the way I like to say it is like we call it the red bubble business design. That's the artistic part. And the scientific part is the testing. So it's both. Oh, interesting. It's yeah, like, and that's something I actually always get feedback from my students, Alex. Interestingly, it's every semester where one of the things is, I don't know what the end is supposed to look like where it's just very different from a pedagogical approach to what we have, like if you're taking a, a comp sci class where you know what the end looks like. And to me, that's always a hallmark of, okay, they're, they're getting it because now they're understanding that it's, there isn't a defined end there and that things, it's not from A to Z where you finish something up, it's you're bouncing around by virtue of the evidence yeah. that's being collected. And I think that's a really powerful thing for, you know, for people to hear that are new into this is that while there is a recipe book, it, there is an art, right? It's, 
not just following the recipe. It's a matter of, you know, going through and the experiencing it and say, you know, I know the recipe called for X, but I, I need to put in a little bit more of that ingredient yeah. before I can go back to the rest of it. To your point is talking about what makes these individuals who are good at this, they're able to conceptualize the unknown while applying a method. And sometimes I think that those are those ideas are at odds with one another from especially a lot of younger students who aren't used to having to think with both sides of their brain, depending on what kind of majors they're working in. One of the questions I have there is if you're guiding somebody through this for the first time, they're not familiar with lean. Is there a way that you're able to frame this for someone that's saying, I don't know what the end looks like, and that makes me uncomfortable? Is there, yeah. is there something that you come into an organization and say, like, how does this work? So you need to admit you don't know. But then here is where I say there are two main activities. One is coming up with the concept that creates value. Value propositions and business models are value propositions and mission models. That's the design part. That's your conceptual part. Some people get stuck in that. They think, oh, that's the output. Well, it's part of the output. The other part is, okay, I'm going to take what I came up with here and now I'm going to test it. I'm going to get evidence to support this business output. So I go through this all the time. So it's about making this progress. Remember that curve? So I'm going from an idea towards <laughs> a validated business model or mission model. And sometimes you don't find anything. Your, your recommendation is going to be there is nothing there. We need to kill it. So that's why I don't actually like to use the word validated because the outcome could be we learn that there's nothing there. We pivoted three times. You still find nothing. So recommendation is there's nothing there. We stop. So in corporations, this is actually saving companies a ton of money because then the team didn't find anything. So you go back and forth between these two. So I always like to say there are two of these main activities, business design and testing. People get lost in constant testing and learning is not the goal. <laughs> testing is not the goal. The goal is to, to start to have something that can work. So you go through these. The end result, I like to just call it a deck, a pitch deck, but not of an idea, but evidence that supports the idea. And the pitch deck will get better and better the more you move away from, sure. from down here, pure idea, towards fully supported you know, business model or mission model. So you kind of move, again, step by step. So what it means for the students and the teams is, what's your goal? Make the concept clear and right, then right. start to find evidence that supports that concept. And you find no evidence, you change the concept, try again. So, and at the end of the day, you might have found nothing. That's not failure. That's what entrepreneurship is about. Sometimes you find nothing and you stop. Ideally, when you haven't burnt, you know, like FTX or so, a couple right. of billion dollars already, right? So, so there was a phase here where... We, you know, even Steve Blank kind of challenges and thought, hey, you know, with, uh, what was it called? Um, Quibi, there's mm -hmm. a lot of money there. Maybe we don't need lean anymore because there's so much money. Well, it turns out money's not free anymore. Right, Guess what? Right. A lot of those projects went belly up because they did, they had too much money. When you have too much money, you're going to go and build stuff that nobody wants. There's a very famous quote by Winston Churchill at, at, at the apex of the Battle of England when he came to his staff and said, gentlemen, we're running out of money. Now we have to think. So yes. it goes to your point. So uh, yeah. sometimes the excess amount of initial resources might be a detrimental to our capacity to think but that's, uh, methodically. That's and that's huge. And that's if we make the bridge to organizations, government you know, to a certain yep. extent, even worse than corporations, but very similar. We think we need a big impact, so we're going to put in big funding. Well, that's what we just saw in the startup world creates mm -hmm. FTX, that creates Quibi, that right, creates right. Flow TV, that creates all those yep. things that we build and that bomb. And that's why the business plan approach doesn't work. So if there's too much money, we, we don't work in a lean way. So it's actually very good to have very little money in the early phases. So this is what we now call metered funding. So mm -hmm. guess right, what? Yeah. You're at the beginning, little money, because we don't need a lot. If there's evidence to support that, okay, I'm going to unlock funding. So it's the same approach than in the VC world. We unlock money with the right evidence at the right time. Super important. It's commonly accepted in the VC world, kind of with, sure. a, with a, 
parenthesis when money was free. We're right. back to that. And in the real world, you know, outside of kind of Silicon Valley, when people were building real companies, um, that, that was the case and always will be. At the end of the day, you need to create value for customers. You need to create a business model and you'll find evidence for that. And in, in uh, governments, it's yeah, even but... more complicated because we always say, governments, we can't waste money. So we say, we're going to invest and we expect you to succeed. Well, guess what? When you're expected to succeed, you play it safe because you can't burn money. So in right, governments, right. you need the same approach and say, say no, no, we're not going to look at return on project. We're going to fund 10 projects expecting upfront that nine are going to fail. Yep. So out of those 10 projects, one is going to succeed. So this is the, the another myth in the lean startup world is you can pivot yourself to success. It's not the case. Absolutely. Real innovation at scale happens when you invest in 10 or 100 ideas and only one is going to be a breakthrough. The statistics from early stage venture are very clear. That makes it harder in government. That's why in government, we need to look at return on portfolio, not return on project. If you yep. want to, to come up with big innovations, you have to expect that you know, nine out of 10 ideas or 99 out of 100 are not going to succeed. So one last question that I have on, on testing business ideas. You talk a lot about sequences, right? And as you're talking about sequences, uh, I, think that it's, uh, I think it's really interesting to think that not only you put a bunch of recipes, you put them in the right order. And you mentioned that the sequence of the experiments is as important as the experiment itself. How do you advise teams that have a tendency to default to waterfall planning the more they move yeah. forward into the process? How do they put their sequences together of experiments to test business ideas? Yeah. So there, there are two, two sequences that you need to think of if you want. That's going to two, two streams. And then, then you think of the sequence of experiments. Number one is start with customer, then value proposition, then acquisition, then scaling, right? So there's kind of four big phases. We call this discovery, validation, acceleration, in line with Steve Blank's thinking. And then the last one is company building, right? Steve Blank's customer development process. So there are those four. So the experiments need to focus on customers first, right? So don't start with, with MVPs when you don't have evidence for the customer. That's the first way of thinking of sequences, right? The natural kind of progression. If you have evidence for customers, then you can go. You don't, sometimes you have evidence for customers. Then you can go to solution right away. But it's very rare because when I ask yep. people, do you have evidence? Well, yeah, they don't. That's number one. The second type of sequence is strength of evidence. And I'll quickly show you that afterwards. What, what I mean with that is the same hypothesis, you will test it first with light experiments that create light evidence. So customer interviews, oh, everybody tells you they have that problem. Okay, great. They just told you, but maybe they just want to get you out of the room. Of well, course. What if we have something where they have to actually sign up with their email? Oh, only two out of 10 were interested enough to sign up. So it seems like two actually care about that problem, right? That's stronger evidence. So you have these two sequences that you want to keep in mind. And actually, I'll use this to quickly kind of just show this in the context of the project scorecard, because you'll get this idea of the business model is kind of holding it all together, or the mission model. That's the first sequence. Customer desirability. There may be viability at the same time, feasibility is one after the other. Then the second sequence is, okay, what if we zoomed in and we first asked, do we have evidence or not? Well, you know, a spreadsheet is not evidence. So we're at zero. <laughs> we talk to customers, but in a very unstructured way, we don't show them anything around the problem or so or around the solution. That, that's light evidence. We now show them storyboards to really deeply understand where we're trying to solve. Oh, that's making it more concrete. That's stronger than free flow interviews where we just ask them stuff, but in a fuzzy space. Okay, well, that's still what people say. What if we went to the next level? We get people to do something, right? Click on a button, sign up with their email, whatever. Spending times in meetings is also, right? If you're a high-ranking government official and you take a meeting, that's an investment that's beyond saying. So that's yeah. what we call light call to evidence. Well, then you have stronger call to evidence, which might be 
them buying something or government officials putting budgets, light budgets into something, that's stronger evidence. And then you have the last one, um, um, call to action experiments that are so real that the test subjects don't even know it's an experiment anymore. And then there's stuff there that you can do in a very cheap and fast way, right? The Wizard of Oz kind of thing where the user thinks it's real, but behind it, it's all a manual approach. That's completely real. So see these two sequences? One is the topic you're looking at, and the other one is the strength of evidence, right? So in my world, it's willingness to pay. Oh, I talk to people. They're willing to pay. Great. Okay, show me the evidence. I don't have, I don't have strong evidence yet. Call to action. They're signing up their email. They're paying some money. Oh, great. But still, they know it's an experiment, you know? So you go from topic to topic, and you go from weak light evidence to stronger evidence. That's the way you want to think of sequences and the experiments that you pick. And this might be a fantastic uh, moment, Jim, to segue to the invisible company principles, especially talking about yeah. mission and government. I right. tell my students, many of them who are from high-ranking positions in government and, and, and the military world, that there is a difference between uh, revealed preference and stated preference. That uh, the, the way I exemplify it is stated preferences, all of those artsy movies in your Netflix queue that you promise yourself that you're going to watch versus the revealed preference, which is all the Marvel superhero movies that you actually ended up watching at the end of the night. You were not <laughs> lying to yourself when you said yeah. that you wanted to watch those movies. It's just that when your behavior was confronted to reality, your yeah. your stated preference, which was, was a certain kind of product experience, ended up being very different because of your conditions. So that's why surveys or, or interviews are a poor way to get evidence it's not that people are lying to you. It's that they things they're telling to you might not match the way they will perform yeah. in the real world. And this goes to the idea of learning that your customer beneficiary exists not in a vacuum, but in a structure, a bureaucracy, a reality that will force uh, their behavior into a certain path. How do we deal with that? When you're not a little startup of five individuals in a garage, but you are a intrapreneur in the bowels of FEMA or the Department of Defense, and you have to build something new within that very entrenched Bavarian bureaucracy. Yeah, that's, that's huge, right? And <laughs> right. The, Literally the thing speaking. Is that we think if we master the tools and the process is going to be enough, but that works for a startup and you know getting funding. The difference within an existing organization is you're doing it within a context with constraints. And the first thing I always show the teams working on this, the innovation leaders, but then most importantly also to the leaders is, that's not going to be enough. In a, any organization that is established, you have two worlds. And those two worlds, <laughs> you know, can be very clearly divided, you know, drawn back to, we start from an idea, it's a startup, we create something, we search for the right business model, and then we scale and manage it. So the left-hand side is the startup world and the innovation world. But any established organization focuses 99% of their effort on managing the existing. So they kind of unlearned how to do that part. That's a great now, Why do I that. draw this? This is super, super important because in the head of leaders, when you say innovation, they say, oh, everybody needs to be an innovator, blah, blah, blah. No, that's not the right way to look at it. The right way to look at it is any organization that's established has two worlds. One is managing the existing and one is inventing the future. Established companies got really good at managing the existing. There's still room for improvement, but they're pretty good at that and their focus is on that. And that's not wrong. You don't want anybody managing a nuclear plant to go crazy and do crazy experiments, right? They're actually Hopefully supposed not. to run the thing. Right. But at the same time, you need to create that exploration engine. So leaders need to first understand those are two different worlds yep. with different rules, with different processes. And then they understand, oh, yeah, not everybody needs to be an innovator. Those are two different worlds. So what I remember a CEO telling me, oh, Alex, I need to infect everybody with the innovation virus. And I said, no, 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 you don't get it. You actually want your 
executors to stay executors, but you want to create a space that everybody knows, the innovators, where they can go to, to thrive. Your job as a leader is to create that space, to market that space, and give that space power and legitimacy. And when I say space, I don't mean physical space. I mean mm -hmm. processes, cultures, metrics, incentive systems. That's the leader's job, to create that space so innovators can flock towards that and actually thrive. So you create a power structure, an organizational design, where these are equals, right? So you'll have 100 projects in exploration. Two or three will make it to exploitation. All the others will fail. And that's okay because you have these two different worlds. And it's not just organizational structures. A leader needs to understand, now I'm in low uncertainty, I'm in exploit. I can ask the teams these questions. Now I'm talking to a team in the innovation world. Uncertainty is high. I'm going to ask different questions, not, oh, are we on plan, on, on target, on budget? That's wrong. I'm going to ask, what did we learn? Should we kill that project? Should we continue? Right? So first and foremost, leaders need to understand these two worlds. And then it's the leader's job to design an organizational, an organization that supports these two worlds. And then the innovators can innovate. Innovators that just do bottom-up are dead <laughs> from the start if there is no exploration world system that has power. So today it's not a money problem. It's actually an organizational design and power issue why most innovation projects fail. It's not a money problem. It's an organizational design and power issue. Today, innovation doesn't have the right system and doesn't have enough power. That's what we need to create. And that's only what leadership can create from the CEO or the, the head of an organization. And then bottom-up can work. Bottom-up in innovation is how it works, but bottom-up without, without top-down is broken. Top-down without bottom-up, broken as well. So we yep. need to kind of meet in the middle, right? Yeah, absolutely. In government, and not only in government, Jim, but it, also in big organizations, but in government in particular, the most difficult thing about the exploitation exploration conundrum is that those who achieve high positions of leadership, uh, the police chief, the fire chief, the director of FEMA, often arrive to those positions because they were very good at exploiting the existing paradigm, right? This is what yes. we would call sustaining innovation. They were go good at innovating at the edges, make, making things 2.3 more uh, performing, increasing profit, whatever. Uh, and once they're there, uh, the skill sets that got them to that position of leadership are frequently the wrong ones to allow for the exploration uh, bubble that you are describing to exist. Yes. How, to, how to fix that? How do you get somebody in a position of authority who's really good at exploiting the existing paradigm of their business model? Yeah, the bureaucracy. To, to, yeah. yeah, the bureaucracy, right? Let's call it to, what it is, to, right? <laughs> create that protective space that is institutionally powerful, as you yes. described it, uh, Alex. What would you recommend to that structure? There's, there's two things. Uh, one is ignorance and the other one is capability. <laughs> no, but so, yep. you know, these people who make it to the top and lead these organizations, they're not stupid. They're really good at running yep. companies, right? Or Absolutely. organizations. Like mm -hmm. I don't run an organization with 100,000 people or more. Yep. Um, that's an art. And what, what I've seen, I work with CEOs of large companies, right? What I realized is this exploit-explore concept is not present in their heads because innovation is still a black box. So today, many people still think, oh, we just need to find the right idea and then execute. That's how innovation is seen. That's why we overvalue creativity and undervalue mm. testing and iteration of portfolios. Right, right. So it's very execution-focused with the emphasis on, let's find the right idea through creativity. Creativity is overrated. What we yeah. really need is a system to, to explore. Now, if you start, and I do this every time, with Exploit Explore, many of the leaders are going to go, wow, you just put words on something I've never thought of that way. Two worlds that live in peace and harmony, where Explore doesn't you know, say, oh, the old farts over there you know, running the company or the organization, and the, the old farts not saying, oh, those guys are on vacation putting up sticky notes. No, it's actually a collaboration. And the yeah. way Steve Blank puts it is, Exploit pays the salaries, Explore oh, yeah. pays the pension. It's, yeah. a, it's a partnership. That's number one. 
And then of course you can understand that and then be more or less able to implement that, right? So that's where it then comes to putting the right type of leaders in place. We call these entrepreneurial leaders who are able to execute and explore, exploit, explore at the same time, or have a dual leadership, one leadership focused on exploit and one leadership focused on explore that maybe report to a board of directors or so. But who puts those or this entrepreneurial leaders in place? In my world, it's the board of directors, right? It's mm -hmm. the owners of the company who are not doing operational work. They need to hire the right CEO. And in government, right, it's, it's you know, that, that's very many different things, including politics. But as long as we don't understand innovation, we're not going to put entrepreneurial leaders in place. Or we're not going to create that dual leadership structure where you have people really good at execution and people are really good at exploration, but they're not just somewhere in a basement. They're actually at the very top of the leadership system. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, maybe last point, we think, oh, we have a CTO. Well, it turns out most CTOs are really good at improving an existing business model with existing technologies. They're not there for the groundbreaking stuff. And I'm not saying it's wrong. You actually, there are different types of innovation, right, more efficiency right. innovation, and then more breakthrough innovation. Problem is, in the portfolio of innovation projects, we have a large part of efficiency innovation, very few breakthrough innovations. So you want to make sure your portfolio of innovation projects in government or in corporations has a mix, improving the existing and inventing the future. It's not either or, it's and. So we don't have the leaders today yet in place. Sometimes we get lucky, but I think now we know how to do this. So we need more entrepreneurial leaders and sometimes it's former entrepreneurs, you know, like a Jeb Bezos, whatever, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, one entrepreneurial leader I love who's never been entrepreneur per se is, is Bracken Darrell, who used to mm -hmm. run Logitech mm -hmm. and now things. changed jobs and is, is running a, a clothing brand or a collection of clothing brands, right? He's an entrepreneurial leader. He hired entrepreneurs, but because he understands how innovation entrepreneurship works, he doesn't just focus on exploit. He focuses on explore at the same time, but without neglecting exploit. That's the other problem. You can never neglect running the organization. It's always and, and. It's never or. Absolutely. And Jim, for our folks in the Hacking for Defense world, they'll recognize these, right? You have to go and fight the battle and you have to you fight do. the battle and win the battle. But at the same time, you have to be ahead of the research and development capabilities of your mm -hmm. adversary. So you are not blindsided by a new technology you did not anticipate. You have to do both. You have to win the battlefield of today, but prepare for the battlefield of tomorrow, right? And, and what's, what's interesting there is the hardest piece is doing both, right? If you're a startup, you're purely an explorer. The only thing you care of, if you're a scaling organization, you don't necessarily need to focus on the next wave. Unfortunately, it's getting faster and faster that you have to <laughs> yes. focus on explore. Yeah. But, you know, there are many situations. You mentioned the battlefield, right? You're running that battle, but at the same time, you're going to start some stuff that is exploratory. But it can't be purely exploratory because you need to use the stuff that works. Comedians, right. actually, funny to go from the battlefield to comedians. <laughs> yeah. Comedians have 80% of content that works and 20% that they're testing all the time. So you need to constantly explore while you're, you're running the thing, right? That's the art. That's what's hard. That's actually, I mean, it's a, any comedian, you're right. That's actually a really good way of being able to frame it as any comedian I've listened to talking about their artwork is they're saying, well, that, that flopped. And I, I know uh, Robin Williams was somebody who was really good about taking those notes and trying different things out and seeing what hit with audiences. And it's a really good way of being able to frame that those exact activities have to be happening everywhere else in, in the business world and government, because if you're not doing those things, it's a good point. It's whether it's your adversarial nations or it's another company that's going to come and eat your lunch is there's always somebody around the corner who is doing yeah. something better than you're doing. And I love the way that you're talking about that, Alex. And I, my hope is I have a lot of students actually that have gone through this program that are going into federal work and they're coming back and telling me, and this is not an exaggeration, every semester, Jim, I use the mission model canvas at work. And this is some of the things we did a project in one month instead of a semester. And here's the impact that had. And I really do have hope that these future generations who are using this methodology as part of their academic exercises are actually going to be this next generation of, of innovative thinkers. So I do have but, hope for the future with these programs. 
I, I love that. The challenge is, so today the students coming out are good at the process and at doing it. But again, that's the bottom up, right? We're bottom up. running an innovation project. We're running a venture. The challenge is that those really well-educated students go in organizations that are behind. So the yep. organizational structures, with few exceptions like in Amazon, don't support this yet, yep. right? So it can be a high degree of frustration coming into an organization, getting really excited. Oh, I'm in the innovation department and I do testing and iteration. But then the stuff dies with evidence because there's no mechanism to scale those things or there's pressure to have to succeed while we know in innovation when you must succeed you're going to play it safe so there's no breakthrough so it's the organizational it's worse than that alex evolves slower it's worse than that you actually have so many veto points and contact points that can kill an idea that even when you have strong evidence it becomes very hard to build the coalition that you need to in order to make it bubble up independently of the quality of evidence of the yes. good idea that you're putting together yes. right so. and that's why we need to educate leaders right so when we go into a company that's my world we always work on both ends we work on the teams which we accompany but we work on the leaders because otherwise they won't know how to judge ideas. They won't know which systems to implement. So you can't do only the bottom up part. So it's extremely important to educate leaders in government uh, positions to understand, even if they are, you know, just going to do execution. Guess what? They should understand how innovation works. Correct. Absolutely. I, believe me or not, I still hear people saying, oh, the innovators are going to go and put up sticky notes and stuff. Innovation is really hard. It's actually, you know, it's much harder than execution, which is also hard, but different hard because we different have a track type, record. Right. We know how to do it. Whole organization is designed to execute. That's why it's a bit easier, even though it's not easy. It's, it's still hard. Right. Of but innovation, we have everything against us. We're only starting to build, and this is a young profession. A lot of it is still not professional enough, despite us knowing. I think you're very optimistic as well. Students being trained, great, etc. But there's more we have to do, and in particular, training leaders. So I'm a big fan of starting from the top and brainwashing yeah, them until they get it. <laughs> I absolutely agree. It's great to have that energy, but you don't want to end up having it with these young people who are they end up getting, you know, they get the fire hose and say, we're not doing this, the, the leadership part there. So I hope everybody who's listening to this and I, you know, it's it's important that this is a it's not a top down or bottom up. It is both of those things both. happening simultaneously and those leaders have to give room for thinking other than just the people with the sticky notes. That yeah. is important work. It is essential work that's going to facilitate to your to your point that exploit that an organization has to do well in order to say stay. I, I have sustained. a tip for students actually. If they go into an organization to know if the organization is innovation ready, I say look at three things. How much time is the top leader in my world CEO, your world might be different, right? Spending on innovation themselves. Mm -hmm. And I put the, the time minimum at 40%. Mm -hmm. So if the leader of the organization does not spend 40% of their time on innovation, innovation will not happen. This is criteria number one. Criteria number two, look at the org chart. Is innovation at the very top? So where is the first 100% job, yep. right? If the CEO spends 40% of their time, where's the first 100%? It should be right under the CEO. If it's not... Huge problem, right? That's criteria number two. Yep. Is it in the basement reporting to the person, reporting to the person, reporting to the CTO? <laughs> right, Not going right, to happen. Right. Third one is the ability to run a portfolio of projects where nine out of 10 are legitimately okay to fail because they're experiments. So if you look at those three criteria, as a student, and even as you, know, you want to go into the innovation profession, you want to change jobs, ask those three questions and you'll immediately know if you have three out of three, that organization will innovate. If you have zero out of three, change a job. Don't go work there if you want to be in <laughs> yeah. innovation. If you have two out of three, not too bad. One out of three, generally not enough. For our listeners, the third one in government, right, this translates into uh, what happens to those who try and fail, right? Are they immediately punished, their career destroyed? Do they throw salt in the ground where they... Or is there a mechanism within the organization for people to try intelligently fail and then move forward with their careers? And that's why I said legitimately fail. But you know what? Right. It's exactly the same in corporations. So we think, oh, it's, it's, it's worse in government. I can tell you, 
in, <laughs> you have so and again we're going to fall into stereotypes you have so much pressure to succeed in the private sector that actually yep. the the pressure not to fail can be even bigger again but with the exception that's why i don't want to stay in black and white that mm-hmm. in government you know we talk about taxpayer money we forget Correct. that you invest in a portfolio it's not the individual failure that matters it's what comes out of the portfolio so it's not that black and white but i'd say sometimes in government it's almost easier yep. if we have that mindset portfolio of investments love that so we're, we're, we're right here. I think this is a perfect way of being able to kind of close this uh, conversation with you, Alex. Thank you so much for Thanks, just Alex. Yeah, this what, was amazing. what an incredible, you know, again, again Rodrigo and I are, are very big fans of your work. So um, anybody who's not familiar with Alex's work, A, shame on you. <laughs> um, uh, but B, these are incredible resources that will that will live with you. And I think they're, they continue to grow and you find brand new value in them every time you open these books up. So Alex, thank you for all the work that you're doing in, in this innovation. It's, you know, it's, it's so important to see people like you who are demonstrating the value and, and again, creating this as being a valid place. So thank you so much for being here with Rodrigo and I today. And uh, everybody who's listening, I hope you had as much fun listening in or watching as Rodrigo and I had uh, talking with Alex. So thank you again. My pleasure. And we put a lot of stuff out there for free, right? So Innovation Project Scorecard, all the canvases, just go to our website and download them. We want people to use this stuff, right? So we earn money in different ways. So we want adoption as much as possible. We try to help people to get to that professional level. And we'll make sure to include links in all of this over to Alex's yep. sites and, and, and making sure you can go in uh, the great free material, but also some of the ones, obviously these books, if they're not on your desk, they should be. So thanks again, Alex. Thank you again to the Common Mission Project for their support of this podcast. The Common Mission Project has demonstrated that students can tackle some of the toughest government problems and in doing so, create vibrant, diverse ecosystems for government, academia, and industry build partnerships around problems, prototypes, and solutions to urgent challenges facing our nation. To find out more about the Common Mission Project, please visit commonmission.us, which is linked in the description of this episode, as well as finding out options on how you can get more involved with our wonderful nonprofit organization, including opportunities to donate. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you on the next one.